What is the most resilient parasite? Bacteria? A virus? An intestinal worm? Uh, what Mr. Cobb is trying to say. An idea. Resilient, highly contagious. Once an idea has taken hold of the brain, it's almost impossible to eradicate it. An idea that is fully formed, fully understood, that sticks right in there somewhere. So this isn't any kind of magic trickery. It's the same shade of gray, but take it away again, and it looks different. So what's happening here is that the brain is using its prior expectations built deeply into the circuits of the visual cortex, that a cast shadow dims the appearance of a surface so that we see B as lighter than it really is. Here's one more example, which shows just how quickly the brain can use new predictions to change what we consciously experience. Have a listen to this. Sounded strange, right? Have a listen again and see if you can get anything. Still strange. Now listen to this. I think Brexit is a really terrible idea. <laughs> Which I do.、Um, so you heard some words there, right? Now listen to the first sound again. I'm just going to replay it. Yeah. So you can now hear words there once more for luck. Okay. So what's going on here is is the remarkable thing is the sensory information coming into the brain hasn't changed at all. All that's changed is your brain's best guess of the causes of that sensory information, and that changes what you consciously hear. Does a dog see a tree? Certainly, if he can lift his leg to urinate on it, he's aware of its existence. And we would guess, not having much knowledge of canine cognitive abilities, that this awareness arises from a combination of olfactory and visual sensory input. We feel confident that the dog does see something, but does it see the tree as we do? Give a dog a command to sit, and he will if he's well trained. Ask a dog to roll over, and maybe she will if her reward always follows the act. If we could somehow give a dog a command to recreate what it sees, and if it had the ability to do so. Maybe with a paintbrush gripped in its teeth and access to some paint and a canvas, we could ask him to make a picture of the territory he just marked. And after he finishes, drops the paintbrush and looks up at us, tongue hanging out, seemingly smiling, waiting for a pat on the head. We study his work carefully. Maybe we see nothing but what appear to be random strokes. If so, we look harder for anything recognizable. If we were to make out something unmistakable. Say tree bark patterns or a knot in the tree trunk, we would conclude that the dog does indeed see some things in the way that we do, and that maybe he just isn't inclined to take in views that would include entire trees within them. However, if we were to find nothing recognizable at all, we could conclude that the dog doesn't see the world in the way that we humans do, or we can conclude that dogs might see the world in the way that we do, but they aren't capable of meaningfully recreating what they see. Or we could just conclude that this dog, in particular, is a crap painter. Now, if you and another person you know were to stand side by side in front of the tree in question, would you both see the same tree? We could mark out a place on the ground to stand, so that we each, in turn, could gaze at the tree until we were confident enough that we could recreate it from memory with, say, a canvas and some paint and a paintbrush. And even if our artistic talents were exactly the same, we would expect there to be some differences in the finished works. 
Of course, we would be more naturally inclined to attribute the differences mostly to individual experience, and not, of course, to some underlying fundamental biological difference, given that we assumed for this example that our artistic abilities were completely matched. For the difference between dog sensibility and human sensibility, however, we can't look beyond the biological distinctions. We know dogs use their sense of smell to navigate in a way that humans don't, so you have one distinction there. However, since we tend to anthropomorphize dogs more than many other animals, it could help us to better fully grasp the nature of our current psychological inquiry by considering a different non-human animal, say, a bat. Most bats use echolocation to help them carve up the world, and philosopher Thomas Nagel famously asked the question, what is it like to be a bat, though he wasn't the first to ask it. Can you imagine yourself riding an air current on a warm summer evening, having to rely on sound waves to find your way around? An interesting question, to be sure. Another interesting question many of us already spend a lot of time thinking about is, what is it like to be human? Moreover, we look at the question subjectively and objectively. We wonder what it's like to be a specific other person, to walk a mile in her shoes, we sometimes say. And we also think about people in general. What set of features of human experience can be subsumed under the general heading, what it's like to be human? Let's try something. Close your eyes and bring up in your mind the image of some scene you're quite familiar with, however not one that would present itself immediately if you were to open your eyes again right now. For example, maybe you're at home now, so thinking about your workplace would be suitable. Maybe it's your family home, the house you grew up in and perhaps the one in which your parents still live. In fact, this might be the perfect case. Recall your bedroom, a place in which you spent many of your waking hours each week, year after year, from your elementary school days until high school. Maybe, as soon as you left that home to embark on your own journey through adulthood, your father quickly turned that room into a study, a place for him to escape to and relax, according to a plan that must have been in place before you ever faced the reality of going out into the world without a safety net. Maybe when you visit the family home these days and you look in on what used to be the place where you slept and dreamed, you feel a bit sad. Or maybe none of this is like your experience at all. However, the room which you spent the most time alone in, in the home where you spent the largest number of years without being uprooted, will suffice if that time alone there significantly exceeds the time spent there with others. If not, this example might not be too meaningful for you, and if so, I apologize. Anyway, with eyes still closed, recall that room. You can see it vividly, can't you? Maybe some books on a shelf up against the wall to your left, a large window in the wall straight in front of you. You almost feel as if you've been transported back across the years. You sense the room all around you, and within this imagining, if you close your imaginary eyes, you feel you can point to various objects in that room blind, the clock on the desk to your right, for example. Now, if you shared this room with no one growing up, it's likely that up to this point in our exercise you haven't brought up any images of other people in that room with you. And if you try by recalling some moment where, maybe, say, your mother was in the room with you, the image of her seems fleeting, almost ghost-like in comparison to how strongly you sense the room and its stationary objects. Maybe you recall your mother in your room speaking a single sentence. So confident you are that you recall every word of that utterance that it seems as if, for a brief few seconds, she's right there in that imaginary room with you. Yet she has no staying power in this imagining. Beyond that single sentence, you can't recall much else she said or did in those few moments on that particular day. And if you keep trying to remember her in that moment, it's as if she's on a playback loop, repeatedly making that single statement and nothing else, 
a ghostly apparition like a character in a science fiction movie who makes a single plea for help, over and over in the form of a holographic video display. That your childhood bedroom, or whatever room it is in your imagining, seems to be so persistent in your mind, while a single moment with your mother in that room seems so ephemeral, shouldn't be surprising. The image of your room is one that was built up over time, an amalgamation of many experiences with the place that generally kept its most prominent features intact from one experience to the next. Experiences with your mother in that place were far less numerous than experiences of being alone there, so the latter notion of being alone in that room presents itself with more force in your mind. In other words, as far as your experience with that room is concerned, the act of being in the room alone itself has far more meaning in your mind than being there with your mother. And looking back at the totality of the time you spent there, the room holds a special place in your memory, one that has seemingly little to do with your mother's existence at all. But aren't we just turning probability into meaning here? If you cycle through all of your memories in that room, it's much more likely that you'll come across memories of you alone in that room rather than ones that include you and your mother or any other family member or friend, so it makes sense that you feel you have a unique connection to the room, apart from other connections you feel you have, connections to other people and places. In a stationary environment, different experiences on different days in that environment will highly resemble each other, especially the visual aspect of the residues of the impressions, or memories as they're more commonly called. When you open your eyes on a familiar scene, your past history with that environment is brought forth and recognition leads to understanding. And this understanding guides your interaction with the environment. It tells you how to see it, what to focus on and what to dismiss, what you feel about it, what it means to you. You're aware of it immediately. Intuitions about what to expect, what to be careful about, and what you can get away with, they hit you spontaneously. And when you see a tree and recognize it as such, it's likely that you don't stop and wonder how it was instantly recognizable at all. The basic answer, one which is intuitive to most of us, is that we bring our experience with us wherever we go, and it's there in our minds so that some part of it can be called up at any time according to the context of whatever situation we find ourselves in. Recognition happens all the time, yet we take it for granted and rarely give much thought to the impressive things our minds are capable of. But... How can we know the degree to which we are aware of our current surroundings and the degree to which we are just interacting with our own history with it or one similar to it? Imagine it's late at night and you've been up doing some reading on your living room couch. But now you're ready to go to bed. You put the book down on the coffee table, stand up and stretch and yawn. You go around and make sure all of the doors are locked, turning off lights as you go. You pick the book back up to return to your study where you'll continue reading it tomorrow, since tomorrow is a Saturday and the living room will be occupied by your spouse and children. You make your way upstairs, and at the top of the staircase you stop, look down the hall, and notice a thin sliver of golden light at the base of the door to your son's room. You go to it, not quietly, wait a few seconds, then open it. He's sleeping, an open comic book laying on the bed next to him. You put the comic on a chair in the corner, pull the sheets up to cover him, extinguish the lamp on his nightstand, and leave the room, quietly closing the door as you do. You make your way down the hall to your study, open the door, and see before you a man tied to a chair, his mouth covered with duct tape, his eyes bulging from their sockets, locked on yours, the room behind him engulfed in flames. Who is this man, you think? And those flames, they weren't there earlier. In fact, I don't recognize any of this. Of course, you don't actually think any of this at all. You wish the man good luck, close the door, and go to gather your family for a safe evacuation from the house. A half hour later, standing on the front lawn, 
You see your wife sign a consent form attached to a clipboard. She hands it to a police officer and they both look over at you. You look down in shame and realize you're still holding your book. Then the officer comes over to you and politely asks you to accompany him back to his patrol car. Of course, you don't literally lose your mind when you enter a room, but you do lose something. A psychological study in 2011 demonstrated the reality of the so-called doorway effect, where one forgets why one came into a room after passing through its doorway. Basically, your mind creates a situational model of whatever environment you find yourself in. If you enter a room in your own house, the recognition is instantaneous. You see the room in the way you've seen it before. If you're the type of person that keeps a room in good order, you instantly know where various important items are in the room without having to look for them. In fact, you could have stayed in your living room, closed your eyes, and imagined entering another room, say your study. And within this imagining, you could have easily sensed where those various important items were in that imaginary room, which represents a real room. And if you wanted to make sure, you could go up to your study and make sure that everything important was indeed in its place. If you were to leave your living room with the purpose of returning the book you'd been reading to the study, you might find that when you got there, you'd forgotten why you came into the study at all. Then you might look down at the book in your hand and think, oh yes, that's it, and then put it back into its place on the bookshelf. Crossing the threshold into a room, you are now in an environment different than the one you were in two seconds before, and your mind creates a situational model which takes into account that your surrounding environment has changed. The situational model that was in your mind seconds ago seemingly brushed away. Your purpose for coming into the room at all brushed away with it, which seems to follow since the purpose was created within the context of a different situational model. Next time, we'll see how findings of modern psychology, such as the so-called doorway effect, are in line with Immanuel Kant's theory of mind, a theory developed by him in the 18th century. Until then, thank you for listening.